Hey, welcome to Small Findings. This is a podcast where I share with you things that I found out. And sometimes these findings are things you already know. Sometimes they're things that you might not know, uh, but I hope you enjoy hearing about them. This week, the findings we have are decibels. What actually are they? And why, why do they seem different when we're talking about acoustic sound and sound in digital audio? the early history of Dungeons and Dragons, as I've read about uh, via the book Playing at the World, particularly what was, what was Dave Arneson's role and what was uh, Gary Gygax's role. And finally, how confident should we be when a cat appears to be confident about something? And I guess how is Dr. Wiley different from a leopard? Oh, and over on my blog, I have a post explaining how I automate one aspect of the production of this podcast so that it sounds less annoying and so that I could keep doing this podcast without it uh, taking up too much time. All right, on to the findings. I've been reading computer music, synthesis, composition, and performance. It's a textbook written, I think, around 1997 or so. But as much as I love this stuff, I am not up on it, so there's still a lot for me to learn from a textbook that's over 20 years old. In fact, in the, the very beginning, very second chapter, there's, there's a whole bunch of things I learned. Uh, first of all, this, what's actually depicted in a waveform is something that as much audio editing as I've done, I've never really thought about. And when you're looking at a sound in an audio editor, when you're looking at that waveform, what it's depicting is the sound pressure level. It's saying how much sound pressure should the computer speaker or, or other output device produce at any given point in time. And I've always known that the higher the amplitude, the louder the sound at that moment, the higher the sound pressure level. But I've never really thought about what is exactly at zero in that graph and what, what are the, the peaks and troughs about. Uh, I tend to think of both peaks and troughs as peaks. But uh, what's actually being depicted is at zero, that is the average sound pressure. When you perceive sounds, what you perceive are sound pressure levels that are below and above the average sound pressure level. So those big troughs, which I, I think of as is extremely loud, and, and I guess they are, right? If there's a big trough followed by a big peak followed by a big trough, that's, that's really loud because you, you perceive changes in sound pressure. But it's actually not that much sound pressure. It is, it is less sound pressure than the average 
uh, ambient sound pressure, or you know what the computer guesses at uh, is the average sound pressure. The other thing I didn't realize, or or at least I re-realized, because I, I believe I've heard this before, but just completely put this away. Decibels, you, you've seen decibels to describe how loud something is. But decibels are a comparison, and they don't only apply to sound. They're a way to express a ratio between two values, and they, they can apply to anything, not just sound. They can apply to volts or, or any, any other thing that's measurable. You know, I, when you hear about decibels, a lot of what you hear is uh, they're logarithmic and things like that. Um, but I, I don't think we hear about the fact that they're a comparison as much. When we're, we're talking about sound, decibels, the full, the full unit that we're talking about is decibels of sound pressure level, right? And when we're talking about things in the acoustic sense, not, not in the computer sense, zero dB, which is what we're, you know, like, like I said, we're comparing two things. Everything is being compared to uh, a zero dB level, which is the threshold of the perception of sound. And uh, this is actually different from, for everybody, right? But it's, it's an agreed on reference pressure that uh, most people can hear barely. So that's zero dB. And uh, there's, there's an incredible range of hearing. So the level at, the sound pressure level at which you go deaf is one, one trillion times that sound pressure level. And this is where the logarithmic nature of decibels comes in handy. So instead of saying uh, a sound pressure level of one trillion, um, we say that uh, that sound pressure level is 120 decibels. And that's when you go deaf. Uh, what is very, was very confusing to me is um, when you're, you're mixing some digital audio and you have some faders, it's generally recommended that you, you never go above zero dB. And what you should do is, if you want something to sound more prominent in, in the mix, is turn other things down rather than turning up the thing that you want to, to be heard. So, so generally, you don't go over zero dB. And I kind of forgot why that was. Zero dB is considered in digital music to be uh, dBFS uh, you know, decibels at full scale. So that's, that's very different from the, the threshold of perception. Uh, instead of being the per threshold of perception, in uh, digital music or digital audio, it's the maximum volume that the device can create. The maximum volume that a sound card or a phone or whatever it is that's producing the digital audio can create. It, it can sound louder than that, but it, it can only do that via by going into a clipped range. That means 
that you you won't have uh, a normal looking set of peaks and troughs. Um, you'll have these these square waves because they've been cut off and they they will sound louder to people, but but they're they're not actually louder than that. So that's why uh, we try not to go beyond zero dB when doing digital audio stuff. Weirdly, I, I think this is one of those things that is well known by all the people who already know this stuff, so it's not really written down. And I, I suspected this was the case, but to find it, I, I searched and the place I ended up find, finding this documented explicitly is actually the documentation for the open broadcaster software. So thanks to that project for actually explicitly uh, spelling this out so I wasn't left hanging with uh, you know the cognitive dissonance between uh, but 0 dB is barely perceptible sound so why would we max everything out at barely perceptible sound? I've been reading Playing at the World by John Peterson, which is a book I've been to read for a few years. It's an extremely detailed history of role-playing games, starting from the beginning with Dungeons and Dragons. If you don't know what Dungeons and Dragons is, it's the first role-playing game. It's a game in which several players assume the roles of various characters that usually have some sort of martial abilities like being able to fight or use magic. And everything is adjudicated through a dungeon master, a person who uh, basically runs a game engine for everybody. And they all collaboratively decide what's happening in the game world using their imagination. It's a game I'm really familiar with because I played it as a kid and then I started playing it again just four years ago. Even with that level of familiarity, it does sound like a strange game when I describe what it is. And that's because it is. It is, a, is very different from most other games and it is a big leap from anything that came before it. There is a book called Hobby Games, The 100 Best, and it's a collection of essays about games. There's an essay in there about Dungeons & Dragons, written by Richard Garfield. Richard Garfield, if you've never heard of him, is the creator of Magic the Gathering, the first huge collectible card-playing game. Here's an excerpt from his essay. He says, To call D&D an innovative game is a bit like calling the Wright Brothers vehicle an innovative car. The definition of game has expanded to include D&D, but there is really no reason that a neutral outside observer would categorize it that way. A definition for game would previously have been something like a contest between two or more players or sides constrained by rules that are understood by all players, which ends in a ranking of winners and losers or perhaps a score or exchange of money. Oh, and it is engaged with for entertainment. Now along comes D&D, &D, and what do we have? We have no winners or losers. 
The rules may be unknown to the players, only the game master needs to know them, and are often somewhat flexible, and there may be no end to the game. There aren't even clear sides. There are players and the game master, but the players are not exactly on the same side as their fellow players, and the game master is neither antagonistic nor entirely neutral. The only ambiguous constant with the old idea of game is that D&D is engaged with for entertainment. In this way, I don't think it is a stretch to call D&D the most innovative game ever. So, Richard Garfield also thinks that it's pretty innovative, and it is a big leap. But the interesting thing about playing at the world is it breaks down that leap, and it's not quite as revolutionary as it seems. By that, I don't mean it didn't have a great impact. I mean, uh, you could see the way it evolved rather than um, it having just sprung from whole cloth. Uh, another popular belief is that Gary Gygax came up with the whole thing. I'm into role-playing games enough to know that that's it's not entirely true, and that it's uh, popularly said that Dave Arneson doesn't get as much credit as he should. But this is interesting because this sort of goes into a lot of detail about what comes from where. So playing at the world starts with war games, and that's something I knew about, that role-playing games came from war games. War games, if you, if you don't know are games in which uh, each player simulates uh, either an army or a squad or some sort of group of military uh, units. The first uh, war game publisher was Avalon Hill. I, I know Avalon Hill from Axis and Allies, uh, a game I played in high school, but I didn't know that Avalon Hill actually really was the first war game publisher. It was founded in 1954 by Charles Robert, who came up with the game Tactics. It was a, a board war game. It had a board depicting a map, had a lot of elements of war games that are still present today. So for example, it had chits, these little cardboard squares that represented uh, various units like infantry or or tanks it had terrain which had movement costs it had players moving multiple units every turn whereas before that board games all pretty much had a player moving one piece and then the next player going and finally it had the the random element of dice to determine the outcome of combat, which is something still in use in war games and in role-playing games. Avalon Hill published a publication called The General, and this was a publication that mostly promoted their own games, but they also had a section called Opponents Wanted, where they would uh, allow people to write in and say, hey, I want to play you. These are the games I play. This is what I like to do. Peterson writes about an interesting thing that happens 
with that section of the general, which reminds me of behavior on the internet well before the internet was out there for the general public. People started edgelording. They they tried to make more and more provocative uh, statements in order to, I guess, get attention and attract opponents. If you're going to talk about war and play games about war, and it's the 50s and World War II just ended, inevitably, you're going to have to talk about Germany and the Nazis. And what a lot of people who wrote into the opponents wanted section uh, just pretended they were Nazis. They took on Nazi posturing. And fortunately, this wasn't open to the entire world, so there are no white supremacists just waiting to recruit them and you know move them up through various uh, 4chan communities until they were really true Nazis. Some, something non-terrible that happened, though, was that um, fan clubs developed. So uh, groups of people would uh, start regularly writing each other and they would talk about the things they like and they'd form little societies. This led to, in 1968, the first Lake Geneva War Games Convention. This was organized by Gary Gygax and it was the first instance of Gen Con, which later became a famous role-playing game convention. Gygax was very active on Opponents Wanted and any other uh, publication that would let people write in. And I, I think this it's interesting to note that uh, Gary Gygax is commonly thought of as uh, a typical nerd, and a lot of people think of nerds as, as some kind of introverts. Uh, Gary Gygax was a very aggressive networker. He was probably very different uh, to the, the typical war gamer out there. And he, he liked to get his name out there. Um, you know, not for nefarious purposes or anything like that. Although, yeah, I have to admit, I'm, I'm always suspicious of people we're out there glad-handing the people, although I admit this is probably unfair. The kind of guy Gary Gygax was, he would, he would write to a lot of people, he would get his name out there, um, he was very prolific. He spent a lot of time on war games, on making uh, his own rules in conjunction with other people who wanted to make their own rules for war games, because there is this sort of undefined space in war games um, when it came to playing with miniatures. So if you bought, bought an Avalon Hill board game, the that game already had its own rules and was well-defined. If you went out and bought a bunch of miniatures, um, little, little figurines representing soldiers and things like that, then um, it was up to you to come up with your own rules. So there was a lot of amateur game design going on, and he, he really liked to collaborate with other people he was pouring a lot of energy into wargaming and the meta communication around wargaming. But at the same time, at this time, he had a five hour commute to work 
because he lived in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and his job was actually in Chicago. So he drove two and a half hours each way. On top of this, he had six children. I, I hope, I hope his wife was okay <laughs> with all of this. That sounds pretty hard on her. And in 1970, he lost his job. So during that time, he he poured himself fully into wargaming stuff. And he worked with somebody named Jeff Perrin to come up with a game called Chainmail. And Chainmail was a game for miniatures that had rules for fighting on a single combat scale. Um, games in which sometimes a single miniature would represent a single person, which was uh, a departure from usually a miniature representing um, an entire squadron or troop or something like that. The other thing that was interesting about it is that it was mostly about medieval combat, but there was a section in it about fantasy combat, about simulating battles from Tolkien and other fantasy novels. Weirdly, some wargamers found this embarrassing. There's a letter to the wargamers newsletter that reads like this. Okay. Without first reading it myself, loaned a non-wargaming friend the November issue, number 116, and I, I think he's talking about the wargamers newsletter. The net result was that he has not stopped laughing since. I refer to the battle report of the month. Firstly, I have lost a convert to our hobby. Secondly, I object to paying good money for absolute rubbish such as this issue. I was under the impression that you yourself were of a like mind. I refer to your editorial in newsletter number 92. This sort of article should not even be considered by the editor. And that letter was a response to the publication of a description of a battle played in chainmail that involved fantasy stuff like ogres and things like that. And this was in 1971. The guys pretending they were moving soldiers around, uh, shooting each other in a tiny model battlefield, thought they thought themselves thought themselves something apart from the kind of people who are interested in wizards and whatnot. So one of the people who used the rules for chainmail was Dave Arneson, who was a recent college grad, and he played with his friends to the north in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. His group sometimes played war games in a tradition known as Kriegspiel, this was a kind of wargaming tradition uh, from, from Germany from quite a while ago. It was written about in a book called Strategos, which was published in 1880. And in this kind of game, you have loose rules, and you have something called a referee. And re the referee and player use their judgment to decide what actually should happen rather than letting the rules decide entirely. And they felt they could create interesting and realistic military situations that way. Here we see 
already that this rather magical part of D&D actually came from somewhere else. And maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Everything comes from somewhere. Dave Arneson's friend, Dave Weasley, used this kind of play in a Napoleonic war game that he conducted called Bronstein. Arneson decided to run a medieval Bronstein game. And this was in 1971. He called the game Blackmore. There were several innovations in his game. The first was that there was continuity from game session to game session. So they'd play for a while, they would stop, and the next time they played, they would pick up from where they left off. And he would actually award experience points. Because Chainmail had uh, different sorts of, of characters. I think there were there's something... There are characters called heroes, and there are characters called superheroes. And uh, David Arneson thought, well, why can't heroes become superheroes by just getting better and better? And this is where the concept of experience points, which, uh, you know, is everywhere now. That's where it came from. Blackmore also had the first known role-playing game, Dungeon. It wasn't intended to be the main thing in his game. Uh, I think he intended the characters to uh, conduct a war, conduct a battle, that kind of thing. But he included a place underneath his castle, Castle Blackmore, where he could go and find treasure. He actually at first berated players for just going in there too much. Eventually, he, he realized that it was fun and he rolled with it. In 1972, at Gen Con 5, Gary Gygax heard about what Arneson was doing with his Blackmore campaign and what he had done with the chainmail rules. They started talking, and later, Arneson and David McGarry, another player from the Twin Cities, uh, made the trip down to Lake Geneva, and they demoed Blackmore for Gary Gygax and his group. His regular uh, Blackmore game, sometimes some of the players would play some of the bad guys as well as the good guys. When he demoed things in Lake Geneva, Arneson and McGarry played all the bad guys themselves. And that that's another innovation. That's, that's another thing that happens in modern Dungeons & Dragons. So we can see that Dave... Arneson brought a lot of concrete things to the game, some of which he may have thought of himself completely, and some he just uh, at least introduced to Gary Gygax. Gygax was quite taken with this version of the game, and he started playing it himself. And they, they started collaborating remotely on writing Dungeons and Dragons. Gygax was the better writer, uh, and, you know, I guess it seemed like Arneson's rules were kind of a mess. Gygax took the wheel, but Arneson wasn't really satisfied with this collaboration. Uh, he complained a lot that he was being cut out, and some of this may have been because they were very far from each other, 
and it actually cost a lot of money to call each other on the phone back then and letters take a long time to get there so there's a sort of a communication gap but but either way Dave Arneson was more or less cut out of it he he wasn't satisfied with the final product and Gary Gygax moved on anyway uh he secured some partners and they all took out lots of loans because they really believed in this and they printed a thousand copies of D&D. There are footnotes in this book about lawsuits. So I am wondering how this turns out. It's going to be fascinating, but I also dread re- uh, reading about the, the possible next chapter in Arneson and uh, Gijax's relationship, which is sort of like a Steve Wozniak, Steve Jobs kind of relationship, it feels like. But uh, I'm glad I'm reading this because already that big magic leap that D&D has made has been uh, broken down and demystified quite a bit. And uh, I now know a lot about what specifically Arneson did and what specifically Gijax did. So the book again is Playing at the World by John Peterson. And I definitely recommend that you check it out if you have any interest at all in this kind of thing. Here's a finding about the ability of cats to rest in high places. We have two cats, one of which is more adventurous than the other. So Bonus Cat, who had a pretty hard life on the streets, is now a confirmed indoor cat. When he has the opportunity to go outside, he doesn't take it. He doesn't want to wear a leash. We could open the door to our our deck, and he does not want to go out onto that, that balcony space. Dr. Wiley, however, does, and she likes to crawl through the, the, the railing and walk around on the outside, so therefore we have to put a leash on her when she goes out onto the deck. Just now, I was out there with the leash, and she climbed up onto the top of the railing. She started to go through some tree branches that overhang our, our balcony railing. And then after that, she found a part of the, the railing where she decided to just sort of lay down and relax. And I thought this was odd, but I did have the leash on her, and I had the other end of the leash fastened to my foot, so if she fell off, it would be unpleasant, but she wouldn't fall down all the way. But I thought maybe she could handle this. Because she seemed relaxed, so why shouldn't I be relaxed? She's a cat, and popularly, cats go in trees. And um, I've seen a lot of nature documentaries in which leopards will actually sleep in trees. So she got up there, and she started just relaxing. So uh, I assumed this was cool. Um, I texted Cat about 
how she was doing this and how she, it was funny. And then a little bit later, Dr. Wiley almost fell off the railing. Although she would have fallen down on the side of the deck, not, not the side that goes down two stories to to the back, to the backyard. Um, so at that point, uh, I took her down and I saw that a cat had replied that <laughs> she can't handle that and that she should be taken down. So apparently regular cats can't really sleep in trees and, and things like that. And uh, just because a cat seems confident it doesn't really mean they could actually handle um, what they're trying to do. And that is the end of the findings for this episode. Thanks for listening to them. If you have any findings you want to share or... You want to complain about the quality of these findings? Uh, you can email me at smallfindings at fastmail.com. Oh, and shout out to people who have emailed me recently. Uh, thanks, Hugh. Thanks, Fred. Uh, it was cool to hear from you. All right. I will see you next time. Thanks again for listening. Thank <laughs> you.